heard this morning about the transformation that God can bring about in a person's life. And as we, as we come to Joshua chapter 2, a very different story, different circumstances altogether, but the same God doing his work of transforming people's lives. The story here of a woman whose encounter with God and his people was to be for her life transforming. God's people, as we've just heard, are camped on the River Jordan. They're about to cross the Jordan and go into the Promised Land. Joshua, as commander-in-chief, sends in two spies to spy out the land in a kind of military reconnaissance exercise. Jericho was a walled and fortified city, the gateway into the rest of the land. They needed to overcome Jericho if they stood any chance of going on further into this land that God was giving them. Joshua is surely hoping that these spies are going to come back with some crucial information about the defences, the wall and so on. And so we read that when the spies get to Jericho, they find help in the most unlikely of places. They find help at the home of Madame Rahab. She ran a brothel and her home was in the city walls. Maybe that's why the spies went there, a good vantage point to inspect the walls and the defences around the city. Maybe they went there because lots of people would go there travelling through, and no questions were asked in a place like that. Discretion was part of the business. Anyway, they hadn't been there long when someone ratted on them to the city guards. And the city guards come to Rahab's house, but she has hidden them in the loft. When they have gone and the trouble has passed, Rahab lets them go through the window of her house, which is on the outside of the city wall, and so they could escape into the darkness, into the hill country. But not before, not before she'd done a deal with the spies, that when they attacked, she and her family would be protected. This encounter was to be life-transforming for Rahab. And that's our focus today. You see, Rahab was a whore, a hooker, a prostitute with a house in this city wall. Her name, Rahab, has vile connotations. Something like a devouring dragon based on the mythical and occultic figures that were so prominent in the land of Canaan. And she lived up to her name, devouring her honour and the honour of her clients as they gave in to the lusts of their hearts. She lived in Jericho. Now Jericho was not a nice market town. But the flagship city of the depravity that had spread right across the whole of this land. Perversion, bestial activities, cult prostitution, both heterosexual and homosexual. And given Rahab's name, that was probably what she was a part of. Prostitution caught up in pagan religion and the worship of their gods. Child sacrifice was common. They would throw live children into burning furnaces. Their bones would be broken at random to appease the gods. Jericho was a place where the occult flourished. They invited the powers of Satan through sorcery and witchcraft. This was not Frinton on Sea. And Rahab lived and worked right in the middle of all of this destructive, powerful evil. And that's how it was when the spies entered the land. But the next time we read about Rahab is in Joshua chapter 6. And we need for a moment just to jump a little ahead in the story. Now, if you don't know, Joshua needn't have worried about a military strategy for conquering Jericho. God was going to take care of it. All they would need to do was to march around the walls, blow their trumpets, and God would bring the walls tumbling down. 
And so that's what we read in Joshua chapter 6. At the sound of the trumpet, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. It's then that we read again about Rahab and what happened to her. Notice in verse 22 of chapter 6 that Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, now go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. Notice something odd about that? Hello? You still there? Just so you don't notice anything odd? Verse 20, the wall collapses. Where's Rahab's house? Verse 22, go into, go into Rahab's house and bring her out. The whole wall had collapsed, except where Rahab was. God had rescued her. And this was to be the first step in her life transformation. God had rescued her. Her part of the wall still intact. Notice then what else is recorded about Rahab in verse 25. Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. In other words, she's well-blessed. The idea of living long and prospering was a sign of God's blessing. Why do they tell us that she's alive and well even to this day? They're saying that God rescued her and she is still flourishing under God's direction. Rahab has had a life saved, lifted out of the ever-constricting circles of darkness in Jericho, escaping the judgment that fell on that city and brought into a spacious place with the people of God. What a fantastic transformation. What a change in her situation and her circumstances. And God was at the heart of it. Without God's intervention, Rahab and her family would lay crushed beneath the walls of Jericho. The next time we hear about Rahab in the Bible, it's even more remarkable still. You have to flip all the way through to the New Testament and to the beginning of the first book in the New Testament, a book called Matthew, Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew is writing the story about Jesus. And he begins his story by writing Jesus' family tree. And in the middle of this family tree, Rahab pops up. First thing we discover is this. Rahab married Salmon. Sounds a bit fishy, I know, but she did. And so, what you need to know is that Salmon was a prince of Judah. Now, if you marry a prince, what do you become? Princess. Rahab moved from prostitute to princess. What a change. The second thing about Matthew chapter 1 is this, that she became in the family line of King David. She was his great-great-grandmother. She'd moved from ruin to royalty. And then last but not least, the third thing we learn from Matthew chapter 1 is that she became a part, as I said, of Jesus' family line. A direct descendant of hers was Jesus Christ. Quite literally, she'd gone from Corgill to Christ. What a change in a person's life. Not just prostitution, the princess, not just ruin to royalty, but from call girl to Christ. Transformed to become a princess in the kingdom of God. In Hebrews, right at the end of the Bible, we read that Rahab is mentioned and listed in the great heroes of faith of the Bible. 
And in the book of James, she's in the same verse as Abraham. Patriarch and prostitute side by side. Who would have believed it? What an incredible change for this woman. Who did it all? God did. It was God himself who rescued her from the war and brought all this about. Are you surprised that God would do all that for an unknown hooker? If you were here last Sunday, you shouldn't be. Because God wants to bless. doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you come from, God wants to bless you. That's his raison d'etre. He loves you and he wants to bless you. And that's at the heart, isn't it, of our church text. To the one who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Isn't that what God did for Rahab? Who would have believed it? From prostitution to becoming a princess in the kingdom of God. Hey, if God can do that for Rahab, what can he do for you? If the same God who blessed her in such extraordinary measure, what can he do for you? Our God makes beautiful butterflies out of ugly bugs. And that's just what he does with our lives. Did God do it for Rahab because she was good? No. She was full on in a city of most awful wickedness. Did God do it for Rahab because she belonged to the right race? No, humanly, she belonged to the wrong race. She was a Canaanite through and through. If she needed the right race, she was in the wrong camp. Did God do it for Rahab because of her religion? Certainly not. She worshipped the pagan gods, and her life was open to all manner of Satan's powers. So, if it wasn't her morality, and it wasn't her ethnicity, and if it wasn't her religiosity, what was it that caused God to save a pagan prostitute? Well, the Bible tells us what it was. And it's just one simple thing. The same thing for every one of us in this church this morning. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 that by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Let's be clear, it was not because she welcomed the spies, but it was the faith that she had that led to her welcoming the spies. That saved her. To have faith in something or someone is to trust them. Rahab was saved and experienced this incredible turnaround in her life because she trusted her life to God. Living the wrong kind of life, among the wrong kind of people, worshipping the wrong kind of God and open to the wrong kind of powers, can't get a more desperate situation, can you? But in that most awful place, she trusted her life to God and was saved and transformed. Don't say today what I've done is too awful. Don't say today that I'm too out of reach. If anyone was too awful, too out of reach, it was Madame Rahab, the harlot. But she became a princess in the kingdom of God. You see, you can do the most awful things and you can find yourself in the most awful of places. But if from there you choose to trust him, even from there your life can be changed. Why did the spies go into the land? Well, for Joshua to bring back some military strategy. But unknowingly and more importantly, the spies went in for God. 
to rescue a pagan woman who had come to reach and believe in him. There are three aspects of Rahab's faith that I want very quickly just to leave you with uh, this morning. You see, firstly, Rahab had faith in God's judgment. She knew God's judgment was coming and that it was unavoidable. I know that the Lord has given this land to you. This is a really important statement. And one, as we study Joshua, we need to understand in order to fully appreciate what's happening here in this book. The reason the Canaanites were losing the land, the reason they were facing such destruction, was that for generation after generation, their wickedness, witchcraft, and idolatry, sexual perversion, had gone unabated and was now well out of control to such a fever pitch that their darkness and depravity could no longer be left unchecked by a holy God. It was for them God's long-awaited, much-overdue judgment on their awful wickedness. And it was not the first or the last time that God would move on a nation against their wickedness. In fact, as God's people were entering the land, God said to them, his very own people, if you behave like the Canaanites, I will do the same thing to you. And some years later, that's exactly what he did. So what was the reason for Rahab's certainty that they would lose the land? Well, we read that she'd heard in verse 10 about the experiences of Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. She had heard that they had been completely destroyed. In the Hebrew, the language is not about human conflict, but about divine judgment. They had lost the land because God had stood against their evilness and God had prevented it from flourishing out of control any longer. Hear then what Rahab was saying. If God did that to them, if their evil was crushed, we don't stand a chance here in Jericho either. God's judgment will come on us as well. The Lord will surely take the land just as he's done with them. No wonder, verse 9, great fear had fallen upon them, and verse 11, their hearts had sunk and their courage had failed. Rahab had faith in God's judgment. She knew the seriousness of the situation they were in. And believe it or not, understanding the seriousness of your situation is the first step in letting God save you and change you. She knew she needed saving. And most people today just don't believe the seriousness of the situation that they're in. The Bible tells us that all of us will face God's judgment. That all of us will have to give an account for the lives that we live. But most of the time, these days, we live as though that is not so. Like the people of Jericho, we do not realize that our persistence with evil is storing up God's wrath that will one day come. Faith in God begins with a recognition that we've got it wrong that actually we deserve God's judgment. There is a time for all of us when our waywardness will be held to account. Jericho's time was up. One day, it'll be ours. There will be a day of reckoning. But I'm sure if you're like me, you're thinking, well, I'm nothing like as bad as those Jerichoites. And I'm sure you're not. And just in case you're wondering, I don't think I'm like them either. 
I might be better than some of the people in Jericho. But compared to a pure and holy God, I am just like them, miles away from what God has asked for me. Miles away. And just like them, because I'm miles away from what God has asked of me, I stand in some way, every way, guilty before him. And I need, like Rahab, to understand by myself the seriousness of my own predicament. I need saving. We all need saving. But secondly, Rahab had faith in God's sovereignty. I don't know how she knew, maybe instinctively, but she began to understand that this God was the Creator God and the God above all gods. We heard of it, our hearts melted, for the Lord your God is not some tin pot deity reigning over Jericho or the land of Canaan, but the Lord your God is the God in heaven above and on earth below. Rahab knew that if God was sovereign and if his judgment was coming upon them, then there would be no one to save them. Could the pagan God she worshipped save her? Could the idols she had sought to appease through her own sexual ritual save her? Could the occultic powers that were part of her life now save her? No. This God had no equal. He was the God of heaven and earth, the God of all gods. You can't run from him, you can't hide from him, you can't beat him, you can't fool him. At heart she knew that she stood before this God and there was no one she could turn to to save her. Only God himself could save her now. Because nothing is hidden from him and everything will be brought into the light. And before a sovereign God, there is no one who can help us and save us. There is no one we can trust in the face of his coming. We're in his hands and in his hands alone. And so, if only God could save her, surely she'd had it. Before God, she was guilty. She was numbered amongst the worst of Jericho. What a cheek, what audacity, what gigantic presumption it would be to ever entertain the thought that the pure God of heaven would save a prostitute, that the Holy One would rescue a harlot. How utterly impossible, surely incongruous. But she'd heard enough about this God to dare to believe the unbelievable. And she says this to the spies. Verse 12. Swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family and that you will save us. Swear by the Lord. In other words, agree this with your God in heaven. I don't want your word for it. I want God's word for it. I want God to agree that he should save me. Incredibly, she had faith in God's willingness to save her. And astonishingly, he did. Why? Because she was good? No. Because she was in the right family or nation? No. Because she was of the right kind of religious activity? No. But because by faith she asked him, and so he did. She trusted her life to God, and for her, as with millions since that day, it was for her the beginning of all things new. The first step to become that princess in God's kingdom. Amazing, isn't it? All she did was 
ask. And God says, okay. But like all of us, she wanted assurance. She wanted assurance that when the day of reckoning came and the Israelites encircled the city, would God remember her? Would God be true to his word? So she asked for a sign, a sure sign. Give me a sure sign that you will save us from death. And the spies did. Verse 17, the men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. Scarlet cord. What on earth would anyone be doing with a scarlet cord? Yet she, it appears, had one lying around the house and had already used it to let the spies down out of her window. Funny, it should be scarlet, don't you think? Have you heard the phrase, a scarlet woman? Remember Isaiah talked about our sins being like scarlet? Did it just so happen that she had a scarlet rope lying around? No. A green cross directs you to a pharmacy. In days gone by, a red and white pole directed you to a barber's shop. Here the scarlet cord pointed to a scarlet woman inside and was an advert for passing trade. As those spies returned to camp, Rahab was left in Jericho. And verse 21 says, she put the scarlet cord in the window. Her only hope, her only assurance was now that scarlet cord hanging for all to see. Listen carefully. This scarlet cord was the sign of her sin and it hung on the outside of the city wall and became the sign of her salvation. Travel with me around a thousand years to another scarlet sign hanging outside the city wall. Not a cord, but a cross. The cross on which Jesus bled and died. The Bible says that on that cross, Jesus carried my sin. It was not his sin, it was mine. The cross, a sign of my sin. But because he died on that cross, it became a sign of of my salvation. The scarlet cord, a sign of her sin, becoming a sign of her salvation. And now, thousand years or so later, that scarlet cord was a little foreshadowing, a little glimpse of some much greater sign that would hang outside a city wall. The sign of my sin and yours on a cross, scarlet with his blood, a sign that would become the assurance of my salvation. You see, we leave Rahab trusting in that scarlet cord. As you leave today, are you trusting in the scarlet cross? If you do like her, you will be saved. And if you do like her, your life will be transformed from ruin to royalty in the kingdom of God. And if you've got any doubts this morning, any doubts at all, whether God really wants to save you, remember Rahab. She asked and he said yes. 
but then remember more fully a thousand years later that the Son of God chose the cross, willingly became the sign of my sin, that it might be forever the assurance, the sign of our salvation. You chose the cross.